The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop trying to charge your phone over Bluetooth and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 214 with guest Billy Hollis, recorded live Tuesday, January 30th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies online at www.franklins.net and by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.datadynamics.com and by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who once told me in confidence that Plan 9 from Outer Space was his favorite movie, uh, whoops, <clears throat> Carl Franklin! Thank you, thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. Hoping that you had a great week last week and starting another week here. This is .NET Rocks, of course. I'm Carl on the east coast of the United States of America. My partner in crime out there in Vancouver, British Columbia, Mr. Richard Campbell. Yes, sir. And happy to be home. Yeah. You uh, went on a little trip. Uh, yet another one. Yes, indeed. I was in Cairo, Egypt. You're tripping all over the place. Well, I'm going to stay home for a while now, but we've got fans in Cairo, man. That's amazing to me. I was sitting in the hotel lobby coffee shop with our friend Steve Forte, and a fellow sat down beside us and said, "Aren't you Richard Campbell?" Huh? Just like that. And wow. he and he he's a listener to the show, so he asked me a bunch of questions and asked what you were really like. Huh? Did you tell him I'm like a a, a thin string bean of a guy who's very meek and mild and. Soft-spoken? Soft yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to know you're telling the truth. I'm, I'm out there spreading the word. <laughs> exactly. Well, what's going on? This is a crazy week. That these people out of New York State got dumped on with snow. If you're a listener out there, why don't you send us an email and attach a picture of, like, uh, you know, you holding a sign, I love .NET Rocks, standing in front of a 12-foot snowbank. <laughs> <laughs> we'll post it on the blog. That would be awesome. That would be hilarious. 12 feet of snow. That's a lot of snow. It's just wrong. Well, anyway, if Al Gore is right and, you know, the ice caps melt and Antarctica melts, 
I'm safe because I'm up the hill. Right. From the river and on the fifth floor. The high ground. However, if the elevator floods, I'm screwed. Could it really work any worse than it already is? <laughs> probably. Probably not. Yeah, I know. It got stuck again tonight. Stupid elevator. Nice. You know, these are the things you have to put up with if you want to be in a nice location. Uh, let's see. What else is happening? Uh, our friend down there in New York City, Greg Brill. Is still, Mr. Brill. Yep. Hired a couple more people for his New York City tour, which he's offering to listeners of .NET Rocks pretty much exclusively. He's avoiding Monster and all those other places. He he, he really wants to find people who are tuned into the community. So uh, if you go to shrinkster.com slash KH6, the deal is... If you're interested in going to Manhattan to work for a year, you get your apartment free. He'll fly you home every once in a while if you get homesick. And uh, great great place to work, too. Nick Landry works down there with him. Stephen Forte. Stephen Forte doesn't work for him, but... No, but he's down there. They're you down could, in the same... You yep. Get into the user groups. You'll see him there. You'll see him. You'll see Andrew Brust, uh, another regional director. So that should be fun if you got an adventurous spirit and you're unattached, or maybe even if you are attached. I don't know. It doesn't matter if you're in the United States or Europe or wherever you are. Shrinkstar.com slash KH6. Uh, email, Richard. We got some email. You first. Me first. All right. You know, even though we have still given, we, we still give away swag to anybody who sends us email, sometimes we don't mention it, but... If you want a free .NET Rocks mug or something, just send us an email with something, you know, that we could read on the air. Yeah. It doesn't have to be gushing praise, but, you know, we won't complain. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be sure to send you a cup or a mug or a hoodie or something. So this is from uh, Portman Wills. And uh, the subject is SQL 2005 mirroring. It just doesn't work. Carl and Richard, first of all, I love the show. You two are gods that changed my life, yada, yada, yada. And I do appreciate <laughs> actually putting the yadas right in the email. That's great. Yeah. Okay, on to more important matters. Absolutely. I was listening to the excellent Alan Hurt interview this morning, which we did a couple weeks ago, and I feel compelled to share some real-world experiences with SQL Server 2005 database mirroring. In August 2005, after a trip to our local MTC, which stands for the Microsoft Technology Center, those are places that, if you don't know, Microsoft sets up with classrooms and, and PCs and places where, uh, rooms where you can go in and interact with, um, with uh, the consultants and, and they actually look over your code. and They got uh, serious server setups there too. Yeah, setups. It's basically, the, you can bring your app in and they can help you figure out what's wrong with it. Okay, so uh, after a trip to our local MTC, I was convinced to migrate our company from SQL clustering to SQL mirroring. Uh, now, after six months of pure pain, we are migrating back to clustering. Our company runs several hundred websites that draw on a few dozen databases. For databases under 10 gigs in size that receive less than 10 transactions per second, mirroring works as advertised. For larger or more highly transacted databases, mirroring caused untold problems. Uh, to wit, sometimes both servers would become the principal, which means the two databases would quickly get out of sync. This happens spontaneously without warning. 
Also, at least once per week, the transaction log would corrupt and mirroring would break. We would then need to do a full backup restore on a 500-gig database in order to set up mirroring again. We've spent several weeks on the phone with Microsoft PSS, which is, uh, you know, support. Product software support? Something like that. Something like that. And they basically said, yeah, that happens. Nice. Hopefully they're working on it. I don't, I, you know. Well, and, and admittedly, mirroring is new to 2005, where clusterings had a few versions to get uh, all the bugs nailed out of it. So uh, not that I th- expected this kind of problem. This is a surprise for me, too. But it's not unprecedented. Well, it kind of stinks that they sold them on it, you know, knowing what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of stuff they had. And either A, they didn't understand this problem or know about it, and B, or B, the, the more evil uh, thing would be that they sold them on it anyway. Yeah, so. but, th- you know, the funny thing there is that I don't see clustering and mirroring as, as exactly the same. Clustering is really about maintaining, you know, absolute reliability, right? That's yeah. an active, active cluster. I think it's a different thing. So I'm kind of surprised he made that migration, and I'm not so surprised he's getting back. If you're expecting clustering, you should stay with clustering. Yeah. Maybe you just got some bad advice from one employee. But anyway, if uh, you, if uh, anybody at Microsoft is listening and they want to uh, address this issue directly on the show, send us an email. Tell us what you're doing about it, or if it's real or not, or, you know, whatever. We always like to hear from our friends at Microsoft. You bet. All right. You got one? I got one. And it's, uh, I I always get the interesting ones, too. Uh, The subject is from Istanbul. Ah. Hello, Richard and Carl. I am writing this mail to both of you from Istanbul. My name is Murat. I was born here and have been living here since I was born. Okay. I am one of your podcast listeners. I really enjoy listening to your program. I heard about Richard's Istanbul trip, but I listened to the podcast after he came back home. I usually download them and listen from my MP3 player. Mm. And then he sent us some links to see how, to let us know how beautiful Istanbul and Turkey is. Hmm. He didn't make the sites, but he really liked them. And he said, please, if you get a chance, come visit us again. Yeah, I looked at the sites, and he's right. Beautiful. And it's I a also fa- fabulous I also, place. I also took a look aerially on Google Earth, and it's a beautiful city. It's, a, it's massive. It's a huge city, and it's an ancient city. It's been around a very long time. And uh, when I was visiting Istanbul, I had a couple of days to spare. And our friend Malik, you remember Malik? Oh, sure. Malik Camus. Took me down to the site they believe has Troy was where Troy used to exist uh, Homer's Troy no kidding yeah uh, and there's actually 10 different cities built on that site how, how have you read the Iliad and the Odyssey of course I have oh man <laughs> <laughs> you suck but Homer's Troy from I can the, never I can never get halfway through it without you know sorry never mind <laughs> but Homer's Troy the in the Iliad is what they consider the sixth city built on that site Wow. And that and the first city's from 3000 BC, so about the same time that the pyramids were being built, this first Troy was being built. Wow. So it's it's an amazing place and uh, and I hope you'll come with me next time next year when we do the the uh, conference. Yeah, event. it's quite possible you actually talked me into uh doing Tech Ed Malaysia. Right. This year, which I'll be attending in and we'll be doing a .net rocks in Tech Ed Malaysia. And that's September. September. Right. Stick with me, Franklin. I'm going to drag you all over the world. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, but does my wife. That's always the challenge. That's always the challenge. And on that note, let's just bring on our guest, shall we? Billy Hollis. 
really needs no introduction. He's been on our show several times, and the reason is that he's a well-known author. He probably wrote the first uh, VB.net book on the planet, he and uh, Rocky Latka. He's uh, written numerous articles for, oh, geez, all sorts of magazines, MSDN Magazine, Code Magazine. He's written books. He's an MVP. He's a regional director. He's a consultant in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he does everything. Smart client guru and tablet PC guru. And, uh, he's trying to get people to write less code. Will you please welcome Reverend Billy Hollis? <laughs> Thanks, Carl. Yes. Yeah, so you guys are on the opposite ends of the country and I'm in flyover country in the middle. Yeah. The flyover state. And you know, that really States. does give me a kind of a different, different viewpoint on a lot of the problems that we run into in the industry because I deal a lot more with mid-sized companies than I do with some of the enterprise companies that other people do. In right. this part of the world, the, the economy is based on those mid-sized companies. That has a lot to do with the way we look at software development. You know, it strikes me that you are the epitome of agile. Every time I talk to you, you're all about, you know, I don't care about this, uh, you know, ar- archetypical kind of golden software ideal. I just want my customers need software and I need to produce software on a regular basis. Um, you sort of, you know, would that be a fair assessment of you? Well, they, from my point of view, they have a business problem and my job is to solve it. It, it. it probably is a little bit of a psychological difference from a lot of people in this industry. I'm not much of a gadget freak or a technology freak. Technology, to me, is really only important if it's being used to do something constructive, if it's being used to add some value. So, yeah, if, 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 it, if, if something really isn't making, making things valuable for the people that, I'm, that are actually signing the checks, then I don't really have a whole lot of interest in it. I, I think that's a fair assessment. You don't have a USB chicken nightlight, for example? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we come back to this again and again when we talk to you that, uh, you know, some of the, the arguments that people are having seem like a big waste of time for you. Uh, some of the, the stuff that people talk about. And it's not that you're writing bad software. You're writing good software. You're just, you know, you just don't care about uh, this versus that. You know, Yeah, I, I don't really get into a lot of the the conflicts that people have over methodology. To me, a methodology... As long as it's got a couple of key ingredients, it's going to be fine. It's going to get the job done. If it's got a rapid feedback loop, so you find out quickly whether people are getting the things done that they need to, if it's got accountability built into it, that Mm. people understand what's expected of them, and they are accountable if they fail to deliver, any methodology that's got that is going to be fine. And certainly some agile methodologies have that, but there are other methodologies that do too. And I've even seen the agile guys go – Way off in some directions that that I think are probably counterproductive from that value perspective. I, I'll tell you about a real incident. I'll I'll leave off the names to protect the guilty here. <laughs> but it was okay. a, a real session that I saw in an architecture conference, and it was someone who is a big evangelist for agile methodologies. And he did two sessions in a row. And in the first session, it was on pair programming. And talking about how he loves to program with his opposite number who was also there on stage with him. Mm. Okay, well, that's fine. Uh, Two people programming as one. Now, they better produce twice the value, hadn't they? 
Okay, or or that's not a value proposition. At least, but but maybe they're doing that. Okay, and then in the next session, he begins to talk about the other aspects of agile, and he says, "Well, I write at least two or three lines of testing code for every line of production code." Well, okay, I'm you know I'm into testing code to check things, but now you've just tripled the amount of code that you write. And then he says, and I prefer two testers for every developer on the team. Now, remember, he's already doubled the number of developers. Now, let's do some multiplication there. <laughs> twice the number of people programming, three times the amount of code, twice the number of testers. You better be producing 12 times the value in that <laughs> software <laughs> yeah. in order for that to be a, a good value proposition to the typical guy who's signing the checks. I think some of them would claim that they do get that. And I don't believe it. Yeah. Well, the the number game that you play with uh, is uh, related, actually, to Steve McConnell, who's going to be a future guest, who said, the cost of fixing a bug after delivery is 200 times what it would have been if you'd caught it at the beginning. So when you get that kind of weight and you think pair programming is really about catching bugs early, actually, I'd say pair programming does two things. One is it tends to catch bugs early. The other thing that I see its best value proposition offering is it stops people from thrashing. You know, that classic problem when a developer sits by themselves in a cubicle and goes around in circles trying to find a solution to a problem and getting nowhere for days. Oh, and I absolutely agree with that one because but but see you don't have to you don't have to pair program all the time to get those benefits. My my partner, Gary Bailey, who is uh, one of the finest developers I've ever worked with uh, in the entire industry, is is fulfills that role for me, and I fulfill it for him. When we're working on a project, it's not uncommon at all for us to pull back from what we're doing and huddle over something exactly to get past a point like that. But I think you can get that benefit without somebody looking over your shoulder all the time. In other words, you can still do seven hours of work a day on your own and huddle for an hour and fix those thrashing problems. That's right. It's yeah. really and about the discipline to recognize your thrashing before that's right. a week has gone by. You have to have the humility to be able to say, you know, I'm not sure about how to do this, or I've got an idea about how to solve this, but I don't know if it's the best idea. It, it's certainly true that there are a number of people in this industry that experience what I call solution lock. Hmm. The first time they see a solution, a potential solution to a programming problem they've got, their brain locks in on that one, and they don't really think of alternatives. And that's bad. And, and to the extent that you can collaborate with other people, you can you can get past that. And this uh, brings up another th observation that I've made about you over the years, Billy, which is you have a, a sort of a tolerance uh, to pain, you know, in terms of programming pain that I see a lot of methodologies going way out of their way to avoid the slightest amount of pain. And uh, you're like, no, bring it on. You know, we'll find a problem. If we if we have a problem, we'll find a solution. We'll we'll write our own binding uh, infrastructure if what we have doesn't work for us. And is, is that a fair assessment of you as well? I, well, I think it is. And and what that comes out of is a a certain amount of I don't know that it's avoidance of pain as much as it is sort of a constructive laziness. Is that I, <laughs> I don't I don't want to deal with 
with too much trivia imposed on me by other people yeah. because that's hard to understand. Yeah. And, and I'm just going to find a way around that somehow. And, yeah. and that kind of comes out of laziness. So you, you brought up data binding. I wrote my own for that just because especially early on in .NET, it didn't work. Right. And I've done various other things. That at my clients, it's common to use the – they often use the term the Billy framework for the various pieces that mm-hmm. I've put in place that fill in the gaps or replace some pieces of the .NET framework mm. to make it easier for them. Yeah. And, and, you know, it should be noted that it works. I mean, you've shipped a lot of software. It's, we've, we're looking at some of this software has fueled the growth of one company from, I think there were 75 million roughly when we came in. There are 500 million now and a real Wall Street phenom. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've, I've got a lot of software out there that seems to be working pretty well. Now, it, you know, there are compromises in that software. It doesn't do all things for all people, mm. but that's part part of the compromises you make when you want to go in and get something in place quickly to get the value out of the software as quickly as possible. Um, I'm not very much into perfectionism in this industry. Um, I'm much more into sweet spot kind of analysis. Uh, What's the the, the 25% of functionality that adds 80 or 90% of the value? Let's get that done first, and we'll worry about the other stuff on, on a later uh, phase of the project. We might want to know about that stuff so we can build in some hooks for it, but let's just get this stuff done and get it out there right away. And then if that's generating value, there's plenty of time and money to do the rest of it properly instead of being rushed to have to do everything all at once. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing with WPF these days? Well, I'm, I've got a multi-pronged effort there. Um, I, I recently signed up with MS Press to do a book on WPF. Billy, 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 Billy. (laughs) Haven't you learned? I haven't written a book in three years now. So (laughs) it's about time to come back and do another one. And it's also a way of forcing myself to learn this stuff at a a, a considerable depth that I might not otherwise do. And I think there's a real gap in the market right now in, in the WPF space. There are books, but all the ones I've seen so far are really oriented at more system developers. Yeah, fundamental stuff, too. Yeah, underneath the cover kind of stuff. And, of Mm. course, there's this huge swath of these application guys that don't give a flip about that. They just really want to know how to write applications with it. So that will be the thrust of my book. Um, Out of that, I'm going to do a a week-long training curriculum on WPF. Mm. And starting sometime in the second half of this year, I think there'll be some demand for people wanting to to uh, to look at WPF as a as a really new UI technology that will allow them to do some things they couldn't do before. Wow! Uh, and so I'll be working on that. And I have a current project in which I have a WPF prototype for something that they're doing. They're in the application service provider space, uh, which you know it's interesting. It's always interesting in this industry to see how things come back around, right? Yeah. And the application service provider stuff five or six years ago, people thought that was going to do well. It just didn't quite make it, partially, I think, because the infrastructure wasn't quite there. I don't think and, Java was strong enough, personally. Yeah. I know a lot was, of people were counting on that. They really were. And and then trying to get the kind of UI that you really want to keep your tech support down, to keep your training down, to make it a, a really effortless experience on the part of the users, I don't think we could do it then. Hmm. And oddly enough, it's coming back now, even though it's not necessarily called that. I mean, what Google is doing with their free office stuff. Yeah. That's kind of that's pretty much application service providing, isn't it? That's, pretty much. It fits my definition. Yeah. It's just they're not charging any money for it. 
Right. So that concept is kind of coming back around, and I think WPF fits into that pretty naturally, especially WPFE. When you think of, well, gosh, if I'm going to do work in this space, I want to have some really good UI. You think there's a, a lack of really talented artist-type people who need to fill in the creative gaps that uh, these applications have? Well, I don't know. The, the word artist-like doesn't resonate with me. I'm, I think there's a lack of people who understand how, how to do proper interactivity, and what, what Alan Cooper calls interaction designers. Yeah. In a UI, and I don't know that I really. The graphic stuff is is nice, and it's something that that sometimes will add a little sheen of of uh, of UI that will help sell it. But that's you know the value of that stuff fades very very quickly. The value of interactivity stays around. The value mm-hmm. of being able for somebody to tell just by subtle clues that the UI is doing things. That this there's a little bit of animation of this color behind this thing that says yeah. something to them. Yeah. That's that's a very difficult art. I, I will be the first to say that I have not mastered it, and I don't think there are very many people who have, and I think we'll probably end up with some pretty hideous designs, but just like we ended up with nasty stuff when desktop publishing came along until people figured out how to use those tools properly. So if that's not the major obstacle to WPF adoption, what do you think some of the biggest ones are? Well, there are there are several. Uh, the the adoption curve for WPF is very very difficult to predict. Um, first of all, we've got corporate PCs that they don't really buy high end video for those guys, do they? And they don't they don't think of that's true. They don't think of their machines needing to support DirectX for just to do Excel charts. Because those developers will just play Quake all day. You that's know? right. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're, I'm sure that comment has been made in a lot of a lot of meetings about what kind of technology to get. So certainly that's uh that's one issue. Is the, is the fact that we'll have to turn over some of this hardware. The second is that we have to learn how to use this, these technologies. We just discussed that. Uh, and and then the third is that developers don't – I mean, it'll take a long time before they understand what this technology is good for that they can't already do. If you're just doing mm-hmm. a, a forms over data app, what what's the compelling thing about WPF? Well, well, nothing, really. Well, you know, Vista has sort of kicked up the, um, you know, kicked up UI a little bit so that you can make any app look good in Vista just by running it, right? Even apps that weren't designed for WPF. But but those that are, you know, there there is a nice little slickness to it that, uh, that people like to come back to. Well, I completely agree. But we'll have to see a lot of those apps in widespread use before developers start to go, oh, well, I'd like to make my own app do that. Yeah. So that's going to take some time. Plus, we've got we've got some technical factors here. The tool support isn't really where it needs to be yet. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be an issue, I think, over a couple of generations of the tools. Yeah. Aren't we missing a set of controls that use WPF? Yeah. Expression is the, is the goo there. That's the stuff. It is, but a lot of developers are not going to go out and spend three hundred dollars for it or whatever it's going to cost. I don't well, that's know a yeah, price. that's a good good uh, issue. I mean, not a good issue. That's an important issue. That it's not in currently as of this recording in February, it's not part of MSDN. That's right. So and so that's and and I know there's a lot of discussion about that inside and outside Microsoft. But the, if if this decision sticks, then that will. That will 
limit the distribution of some of the tools yep. that get you some of the very best UI. That's going to make it tool, hard. And the tools that are built into Visual Studio are still pretty um, – they've got a long way to go. Yep. Well, I mean, Studio shipped before WPF. Uh, we got to wait for Orcus, right? Right. But even the plugins that we're seeing now, the, because we've got the extensions – for Visual Studio that you can get to go with .NET yeah. Framework three. At, at this point in time, you're right. The tools aren't there. Not that they, not that we expect them to be there, but you know it'd right. be nice, of course. But yeah, we have to wait for them. I'm sure they've got guys up there, very talented guys that are just working themselves, you know, into into stupor trying to make this stuff work well. And and, and I I'm, I'm sure that we will see it, but it will take some time. And because of that lag, we'll see some lag, resulting lag in the adoption of WPF. There will be people who won't even pick it up to look at it until there's a very accessible designer that they can just drag and drop and start doing fairly straightforward things. And, and they don't have that yet. We're talking about bland. Yeah. Bland. Yeah. Well, and I got to imagine that the real motivator is going to be the the VP of development looking at somebody else's app with all these great widgets and going, how come our app doesn't have that? That's right. Or in the ISV space, some guy saying, you know, we, we've got to have this kind of glitz to sell now. The bar has been raised, and we right. just have to put that in our own app. And, and, and it ha you do have to make the business case for this. Yes. Yeah. And there are particular vertical spaces where the case is extremely easy to make, and I happen to work in one of them, which is healthcare. Anytime you've got complex, rich data, and you've got to present it to a broad range of different kinds of users, then WPF is, is the kind of advanced technology you need for that. Doctors doctors are the worst users, I yep. think, in, in the <laughs> entire economy because yep. <laughs> they really won't use something unless it's drop-dead easy to use and think about the complexity of the information that you're trying to show them. How many times have you heard, it doesn't recognize my handwriting? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, nobody freaking, recognizes your handwriting. Yeah, you're a doctor. Come on. Well, you know, they, they take Band Handwriting 101 as the first semester of medical school. That's right. Actually, I, I can actually explain that. This is kind of a side thing, but <laughs> because I spent a year in medical school, which a lot of people don't know. Wow, I didn't know that. I did not know that. And let me tell you that the decision to leave medical school was w one of the decisions I have regretted the least <laughs> in my whole life. <laughs> Because I do not think I was cut out for that world. But when yeah. you go to when you go to medical school, man, you just don't realize how much stuff they're throwing at you. You have to memorize all of it. Your notes have to be detailed. The amount of writing you do is dramatically increased from what you do in, in typical college classrooms. And so it's almost a matter of survival that you just develop awful handwriting just to get fast. Mm. And then that pers that persists when you become a practitioner. Time spent writing is time spent that you're not talking to patients or doing other things, so you do it fast. Yeah. You need some sort of handheld shorthand device or something. Yeah, and there's a lot of people working on stuff like that. So a lot of these new technologies are, are I think, going to make an impact in medicine, in healthcare. Um, and then there are other places. Anytime you need complex data visualization, financial kinds of applications and such, I think you'll see some good applicability of, of WPF when people realize the, the additional value that it adds. I tell you, the people in healthcare, you've seen, of course, I think we've all seen some of the original demos that were done, I think maybe all the way back in PDC 03, where it was a healthcare app and some of the jiggly lines and some of the transformation stuff to make the UI have kind of a pseudo 3D appearance. Yeah. You guys know the demo I'm talking yes. about. Yes. 
that demo makes a bigger impact on healthcare people than you could possibly realize. Huh. As soon as they see it, it's it's as if it opens their eyes that these flat two-dimensional constructs that they've always used to think about the way software is done has now been broken. And so they, they go back to, a, to, to sort of an open-minded state about how things should be done. We're talking about the Scripps Institute app? I think that's what it was called. Yeah, that's, it. that's one Tim of the Tim Huckabee's thing? Uh, it's the one where you pick a patient and then you can drag over different charts that may overlay. And when you, uh, Oh no, that's a different app. His was the, was the cancer cell explorer. Oh no, that's the one that Tim Huckabee's uh, analogy did. No, that's not the same app. That one of course is probably the prototypical demo of just how powerful 3d can be. As a matter of fact, this is a good time to plug DNR TV because Brian Noyes did a demo of WPF that included a subset of that, Scripts application, a smaller version that just works at the desktop. It's not connected. Yeah, that's a powerful demo. And people who are wondering, what's the big deal about WPF? If you can manage to, to see a video that shows that, it's it's one of those experiences that kind of makes you realize there are things you can do well beyond uh, what we've done in the past. Yeah. You know, um, what about the tablet? How, how's the tablet faring in the healthcare world these days? I'm always curious to know. You know, if, if it's really taken off. It, its adoption curve has been slower than I expected. It's been steady. Uh, certainly, if you go into doctor's offices now, um, there are there, there's a decent chance that you will see a tablet PC instead of a clipboard. Hmm. Uh, about half and half from my own experience. And so that's, that's a, some mo- movement in the right direction. Uh, I, I, I believe that by now we would be, be further along. The thing that's kind of holding us up there is that clinical record systems, electronic medical record systems, are in just a tremendous state of flux right now. Yeah. That's, they're they're, that's, they've always been in a tremendous state of flux. Seems to me I was working on these things 10 years ago, and, and people still hadn't made up their mind of standards and other right. crap that they wanted to, yeah. So the typical doctor's office now still has the big rows of paper files. And in addition to all the confusion we've had in the past about, will the technology really do this? Is it easy enough to use? We have other problems now. The government's getting involved with some initiatives to try to standardize things so that the information can be passed around. Technology is developing very quickly. We have lots of new technologies being put on the table. And all of these things create a lot of uncertainty in exactly how these systems ought to be written. Plus the fact that that market is rather fragmented. It turns out that that because of the fussiness of doctors and what they want, that the clinical records management field in the computer software sense is not dominated by anybody. There are lots of different companies that address different specialties Hmm. for physicians. And so there isn't just one or two or three big players that you could kind of make everything work around to make this ubiquitous. Yeah. So the smaller players, I mean, they're they're not going to invest in anything. Yeah. Because the risk is too high that they will invest in something, do a complete platform change, have all this valuable patient information, and then in five years they got to do it again. And or something horrible happens, like their data gets lost, or yeah, you know, somebody actually accidentally formats a hard drive or something. Yeah. So the, that, that's yeah. and that's kind of a that's kind of a typical characteristic of healthcare is that they will discount risks that they've already kind of built into the system. There are risks with paper systems. If yeah. you don't find the right paper, you know, people die because of that every day. Yeah. 
But those risks are already factored into the system. New risks are not. And healthcare people tend to be very, uh, very careful about new risks because the legal liability system forces them to be. Kind of sounds like the way some people build software. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is getting back to my point earlier. So uh, Windows Workflow, you've been playing with that lately. What's I have been like? doing some of that. I actually looked at that starting pretty early because I had just, at the time that Windows Workflow went into beta, I had just finished and implemented a large workflow-based system where we did some significant business process reengineering. We basically ripped and replaced everything this company had for um, ordering and distribution of pharmaceuticals. Huh. And so I was very interested in workflow because this it, my entire system had been workflow-based, and I had to do so much work to do it. Right. I had to write my own – myself and my partner, we had to write our own rules engines. We had to, we had to figure out a way to do the queuing and how to, you know, to get, the, get the status of an order transferred around from one workstation to another in a distributed way. It was a huge challenge. The system has been very successful, but it was a huge challenge. And so I thought, well, gosh, this, everybody needs this. Everybody needs – I'm sorry, I shouldn't say everybody. Lots of people that have complex business processes need that workflow capability because it adds a tremendous amount of value. And that's what you know, BizTalk proponents have been saying for years is that uh, you know, this solves so many problems at the same time. gives you a nice little place where you can go fix those rules. And BizTalk at a certain level was the right solution. You had to be at a certain fairly high-end level in order for it to be – the economically right solution right. because it costs a lot of money and, and the integration of it uh, costs a lot as well. But yeah, BizTalk does some things extremely well, particularly mapping from one format to another as a part of the process. If you if you need that, then BizTalk is a pretty clear solution. So we didn't me, need that. We were pretty much doing everything internal. Well, let me get this straight then. You wrote your own workflow? Yes. You did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Did you use any third-party tools, or did you do it all from scratch? We evaluated third-party tools, and and we decided to do it all from scratch. And and the the client was very happy with the way things turned out because it was exactly what they wanted in terms of re-engineering their business. You know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics. And their product is the one that we really love, Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use. It's powerful. You just create the reports. You put them right in your assemblies, and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms. Works with ASP.NET. It's easy, and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools, too. And you should check them out. Please check them out at datadynamics.com. So when did you sleep? Um... You know, it was difficult, but it wasn't it wasn't as hard as you might think when you're able to restrict the problem set down. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, there were some issues in terms of I'm no SQL guru. So writing stored procedures to do some of these complex transaction-based things, transferring queue items around, 
was I didn't get that right at first, and we had to to go back and do some performance tuning and such on that. And we tried to use message queue in some places, and it turned out it really didn't fit as well, so we we had to replace that. So there were there were some interesting glitches along the way, but they were pretty happy with the way things turned out. It was not a huge project on the scale of of, of such things. That is, we had a staff of what I guess total of six developers. Hmm. Did, the, did the entire thing about eighteen months, including writing an inventory system and various other things. So it was it worked out pretty well. And here's the problem you run into with the third party stuff in the mid size space. Every time you take on a third party solution like that, you are now taking on another dependency for your business. Sure, right. That if if that if that vendor goes belly up or fails to keep their product going for new operating systems or whatever, then that, that just leaves you in a very, very bad situation. In the mid-sized space, people are just hypersensitive to that risk. They'll use third-party tools if they're cost-effective and if they have complete confidence in the vendor, which is why, of course, Microsoft tends to do so well there. They have a lot of confidence that what Microsoft puts out is going to be there in future years. Right. But they don't like going to other multiple sources of functionality for their systems. They'll do it under the right circumstances, but if you can present them with a good alternative, they'll take it. What about an open source project where you actually get the source code and can modify it for your own purposes? I've talked to some of the people in that space that are happy with that, and they do that. Of course, I don't tend to work in that world. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them are a little uh, reluctant because they misunderstand they think that means that they have to then turn around and expose everything they've done to the rest of the world. Right, yeah, no, you don't have to and always they, do that. You don't have to do that, but they misunderstand that. So I do see people that do that, but that's a fairly small fraction. And then there's just lots of people such as yourself who write little samples of code and just put them out there in books and articles and just on blogs and websites and stuff. There's a lot of, uh, you know, people steal a lot of that code, you know, not, not illegally, but they take it and use it. Well, we have to do that because there's so much for people to know to get anything done. Uh, this, we would already be completely stymied on software development if it weren't for internet search engines. Yeah, we'd just be stuck I, because I know I look at the things I do and the help I have to have to make things work to to put together the pieces and. Yep. I I don't know how I could possibly have done it without all the diverse sources you can get to on the internet. You certainly couldn't do it in any reasonable time with just the documentation anymore, because things are too complex. It's true. I I did actually a um a keynote at one of the conferences, VS Live down in Dallas, where mm-hmm. I talked about the the complexity that we're up against, and people after that came up to me and and just they were they were very responsive to that message because it's such a hard problem for them to deal with. Uh, the first time that I tried to address that from a point of view of trying to help people understand what, what the emotional experience that developers are up against now, as I was actually in a, in a group at Microsoft talking to some of the people up there, trying to help the Microsoft team explain, understand what was what, what we were up against. The best analogy I've ever come up with for this is what I call the Home Depot effect. <laughs> Lots of choices. Yeah. That if you're walking up to the framework and you're trying to figure out how to do some particular task, the emotional experience is not at all unlike having something broken in your house and walking into Home Depot. Yeah. 
and, and thinking, I need to get this fixed. But you don't know where to go. You don't really know exactly what the piece that you need looks like. Right. If you get it, the directions on the back might or might not make sense, you know. Install with a 20-millimeter retracting soffit wrench. Yeah. I mean, I just made that up. Back to Home Depot. Yeah. (laughs) But it's also that sense of, I don't even know what question to ask. That's right. Yeah. That's the big problem. So there's there's this, that really resonated with people that, that, yeah, I don't know what to do, and and I need guides, and there aren't nearly as many of those around as we need. So kind of evolving off that, I'm, I'm really concerned and have been thinking about it to the point where... I think I think it's time for a big shift in the entire way we look at software development. Um, I don't see how we can continue to increase the complexity any further than we are. I mean, we've already reached the point where I don't know. I don't. I consider myself a generalist in this in software development, but don't ask me about ASP.NET because I can't tell you. Yeah. I know I know next to nothing there. I could put up a simple website, and that's all I could do. WCF. I'm working on a project with it now, and I'm going to make it work, and then I'm going to quit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's an interesting truth here that (laughs) we have confidence in our skills in the sense that I know I can sit down with this and make it work. Right. Today, I don't know how, but I'll know enough to get it to go. Uh, But there's never this sense of I'm going to own this technology. That's right. You know, that's always that was always a problem for me when I was consulting because when you when you hire a con, when somebody hires a consultant, they want to feel confident that you know everything going in. Like the meeting in the morning, you should have it all figured out in 10 minutes. And my strength is in problem solving. So there might be a problem they've been struggling with for weeks and I can look at it and in a ha- course of a half an hour 45 minutes to an hour, pretty much have it figured out. And I'm going to use the internet and I'm going to use, you know, my resources and I'll figure it out. But, you know, it's kind of an unnerving feeling when, you know, somebody would ask you a question about what you know about something and the answer is "Mm, not much right now, but I will shortly. Yep. Yes. That's, that's a hard thing for people to accept until you demonstrate that you've been able to do it. I, I recall one case fairly recently going into a client, they had some really odd thing uh, and no touch deployment that, that was coming up. Mm. And the, the poor developer there had been working on it probably two weeks to try to solve this problem. And I dinked around for about about an hour, I guess, and tried various things and then thought, well, I'll clear the download cache. Now, this developer <laughs> didn't even know that there was one. Right. How can you know to clear something if you don't even know it's there? Mm. It, I mean – no touch deployment was just magic to those folks. Yeah. Now here's the problem: we need magic. <laughs> right. <laughs> we need magic for for a lot of people, but somebody has to know how to pull out the wand and you know do it. Right. And and sort of dive underneath and fix it. And and that's a that's a real vulnerability because the supply of such people is limited. So in the case of WCF, you know you're you have confidence in the toolkit that. You know, you don't need to know all this underlying stuff. Uh, That's right. I'll let Yuval Lowy wor- worry about all that. Right. <laughs> okay. But you you want to know how you know what to call from the top. That's and, right. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, Yuval does a master class on right. WCF, and I attended it last summer. And man, what he knows about WCF just blows me away. Yeah. 
but there were a couple of times when he would say, now you could do this this way, and he would spend 20 or 30 minutes explaining how you could make WCF do this, and he would get to the end and say, but that's a bad idea because A, B, and C, and he would show. Yeah. And, you know, from my perspective, I'm sure that most <laughs> of the people in there were very happy to hear that. They were interested. From my perspective, he could have just told me that at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I would have believed him. <laughs> I want that 20 minutes back. Yeah. <laughs> just just tell me, don't do this. Don't do that. And right. I trust you, Yuval. There are good reasons why you think it's a bad idea to do it. And so, so that's kind of for, for WCF is the level of competence I'm going to have. I'm going to understand basically what it does and what it can be used for. Mm. I'm going to write a generic facade for it for my apps that that uses some of the standard ways of doing things, and then I'm I'm not going to think about that anymore. Yeah. And I've been doing this a long time. Actually, that attitude cost me a job with Microsoft in 1997. Hmm. I was interviewing for Microsoft Consulting Services. And I'd gotten through all the interviews to the last. You know how it works with them. They interview you all day, and anybody can say no at any point. So I get to the very last one. It's a C++ guy, and he doesn't really know what to talk to me about because I'm a VB guy. Right. And he says, well, um, if you use the Windows API, sure. I have to use that from time to time from VB. Well, what have you used it for? Well, if I just finished a project where I had to do some complex INI file stuff back before we had XML, right? Right. Right. And so he said, well, tell me about the calling parameters and this, that for this API call. And I said, well, you know, I wrapped that up in a function, a VB function about a year and a half ago, and I've never thought about it again. Ah, that must have gotten his craw. And that was not what he wanted to hear. Because <laughs> he doesn't have such function. That's, that's right. So that's where I just have a a hard time sometimes dealing with the system folks who really want you to care about such things and i just don't if it's plumbing man i'll i, I want the water to flow that's all i care about <laughs> yeah i turn the tap the water comes out it goes down the drain that's if it right. doesn't i call a plumber that's next right. i will install a new faucet right okay i know how to do that but i don't want to be underneath the house taking yeah. pops apart yeah yeah. Well, you're an applications developer, you're a solutions provider. So that's that's what you do. Right? Well, uh what else is new that you've been thinking about? Geez, it's probably been at least a year since you've been on the show and you you know, you must have been doing some uh some other interesting projects. Let let's talk about Vista. Do you have Vista installed? I do have Vista installed. I've been working with it pretty much all the way along the line from the earliest betas and watched it kind of grow from the ugly duckling (laughs) from the early betas. It's come a long way since then. There are things about it that frustrate me, but I recognize that that really flows out of the fact that Vista's not designed for you or me or Richard, right? Yeah. It's designed for my mom. Yeah, right. And I I realize that they outnumber us. There are a lot of them. Right. And that's Billy's first rule of programming is that users outnumber developers. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> and so you do things that are better for the users, even when sometimes that that's that the developers have to kind of take take the the hit for that. Yeah, and that's why I don't have as much. That's why I'm in the smart client arena, for example, because it, at essence, if you say, well, we're just going to do everything in the browser, and yeah, it's not as good as it should be for the users, but we can manage it. What you're saying is we're going to hurt the users to make things easier for ourselves. Right. Yeah. And so. That I don't I don't go with that attitude. So I put up with things in Vista that aren't necessarily optimal for me because I know that that's what that broad 
swath of users that, that aren't technical need. They need more protection than I do. Well, I'll tell you, Vista was really great 10 minutes after I started using it when I turned UAC off. That's when it started becoming really, really good for me. But that, I lasted a week, actually, before I turned it off. <laughs> took me 10 minutes. I said, you know, that's The only reason I that. haven't run into UAC is I've kept it off my development machine so far. But, yeah. you know, this is a, not a regular mortal problem. No. Right? This is a developer problem. And, and I understand that the solution they're going after that they're trying to solve is a pretty intractable thing. Yeah. User what access kind? control. Yeah. I needed to qualify what, that. What kind, yeah, user access control trying to protect the system from bad things by giving the user a higher level of, of information about what's going on. Right. The problem is that what you really need is artificial intelligence that's smart enough to know the difference between something malicious and something that's not. Yep. And we don't have it. Yep. Right? I do not run antivirus on my main development machine. It's, it slows the system down too much. It gets in my way. Every time I want to do something with a VB file, it complains. Right. So I just turned it off. I've never gotten a virus. Yep. Because I've well, got that intelligence built in here from so many years in the industry that I know what not to do. Right. But we, we can't seem to put that into software. You got a firewall. You don't click on EXEs and email. You know, they're basic things that you don't do. I'm with you. I don't run antivirus either on my development machine. I don't run it on my audio machine. In fact, I don't run it at all. I'm, I use, uh, I'm behind NAT, so I'm less exposed. I'm, uh, well, that's not really a security issue, but, you know, you are less exposed. Absolutely. Yeah. I have, mean, what you're really trying to defend yourself against are these day zero issues. Yeah. Which is where NAT and all those things come into play. Yeah, exactly. So, I like you, I have the firewall on. Um, you know, I only allow the things that I need, and it seems to work. I'll tell you, I had a great experience with Vista recently. And first of all, let me just tell you, I'm really loving it. Um, you know, you, when you're running it on a machine that can handle it, it's just great. I run it on my laptop, never crashed, never had any problems whatsoever. The easiest printer installation I've ever done. I, I have a printer that's on the network. It's a network laser printer. And I just said, add a printer. It says, oh, one of these, you know, and it, yes, okay, installing. You know, it identified it, went out, downloaded the driver, or it had the driver or whatever. And I just haven't had that experience in so long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's been a long time since computers wowed us. I know we're a bitter and cynical crowd, but... You're exactly the discovery phase surprised you. It already knew where your printer was. Yeah, I like that. And the fact that that little search thing, you know, run Notepad by typing Notepad into that. And yeah, that's, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Granted, um, these aren't new ideas. I mean, they've been out in the third party, but you know, when you set up a machine, you, you, the first thing you do is you spend hours going and installing all this extra market software that does all these nice things that uh, now just come right out of the box. So that's good. Yeah, it, it always amazes me to hear you guys talk to Scott Hanselman or to see stuff on his website, because I, I can't imagine what installing a new machine must be like for him. <laughs> yeah, he is a tool maniac. He, he probably installs, what, 20 things? Oh, it's incredible. At least, at least. And, and I... I'm too lazy for that. <laughs> the thing is, though, the thing is, he gets utility. I mean, he's he he actually uses them. Yes. Yeah. And I would too if they were installed. But the, it's a cost benefit thing for me. 
Yeah. And and so I tend not to do them just because that's one more thing that every time I do a new machine, I have to worry about. So my laziness keeps me from doing the stuff that Scott does. I'm glad he does it because somebody needs to sort these tools out for people, but another I'm, thing too, about, I'm too lazy for that. Another thing about Vista I've noticed is that it's uh, – and Scott, uh, I've talked about this on Hanselman. It's in, maybe even on DNR before. But uh, P-Invoke seems to be a little persnickety. So any kind of Windows API calls that you're doing – where, um, you know, in sizes of structures that have to get passed in as a member of the structure, for example. Yeah. And if there's an element missing or the size is off, you know, it'll hang. So whereas in XP, it'll just ignore it. Yeah. So there are things like that 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 I had to figure out the hard way. You know, I've been doing some low-level audio uh, classes that, that I'm using for podcasting and recording and uh, audio over IP and stuff. And they just wouldn't work in Vista. So I had to, and they, it turns out that, yes, they were just these little details in the Windows API call um, constructs that I had to fix. And, and I've noticed my own share of those, and we could go through them, but the, the basic idea is I expected that in the course of a new operating system. Yeah. For something that is brand new, I'm I'm okay with with the state of Vista now, understanding who it's aimed at. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it, sort of flowering into the beautiful swan in a year. Or I so. agree. Yeah, especially with the expression and WPF blend and all this. Yeah. WPFE. Oh my God. You know this. It's going to be a great year. <laughs> I, I I find it interesting. There's so much discussion around upgrading with Vista since it's aimed at the regular user. I, they never upgrade machines. They're just going to buy new ones. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think this is definitely going to produce a surge in machine sales if it hasn't already. Yeah. Let's uh, see. Other things, I, I, I think it's pr- probably one of the one of the areas I've been spending a fair amount of time thinking about. It goes back to that keynote I talked is kind of the Google versus Microsoft thing, and and my mental model of that. Um, it, it appears to me that you know Microsoft's been spending most of their time in the last, whatever, eight or ten years, countering the Java threat and everything's enterprise. And, you know, I live in the mid-size right. space. The only enterprise that I want to see is Star Trek. No! Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. So, Engage. So, Saw so that it, coming. So it's just, yeah. So it's, uh, it, it's, that's been a frustration for me because Microsoft's always kind of owned that mid-size space, and I don't see that they really uh, – are doing some of the things that, that they should do there to make that space easy. I mean, you should there should be a tool under .NET that forms over data is as simple as pointing at a table and pressing a button. It should be just built into Visual Studio to do that. And yeah. so, so we don't have that. Now, and people are, are looking at Google and saying, well, you know, they're offering Office, and that's a competitive threat. And it is of a sort. But from my perspective, Google is really at the opposite end from Microsoft, you know, Joe's bait and tackle shop right. and use Google for their word processing and their spreadsheet stuff, et cetera. Yeah. And Google isn't, isn't really applicable to that mid-sized space either. Cause those companies, you know, they've got all kinds of rules while they've got to control the information mm-hmm. at their, at their fingertips. They, they can't necessarily trust Google for that. And they can't necessarily get the functionality they want out of those very simple apps that Google is doing. So that mid-sized space to me looks like a, a nice big opportunity there. And it worries me that they aren't being really addressed by either of the two major competitors that are duking it out in this whole space right now. Well, that's where you come in. Well, that's yeah, that's where I spend my time. I mean, one eight hundred call Billy. Call Billy. <laughs> 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 
I've seen this for years, though, and Rocky Locke and I have had talks about this, about the fact that, you know, from a pure self-interest point of view, we want it to be complicated. We want it to be messy. Because then people have to call us, and they have to pay us a lot of money to come in and fix things for them. Yeah. But we don't look at it that way. Yeah. I mean, we serve on you know, the, the design review committees and such to help understand how to make things easier for routine folks. We, we fact- talk- Beg pardon? I was going to say, and the fact also is that you'd rather write software in a productive and, and, uh, and good way rather than clean up somebody else's mess that, you know, there's no end to projects like that. That's right. I don't want to be doing the same thing over and over and over again. Right. In fact, I can't. Now, there are people who can, but my brain will shut down after yeah. so many iterations of the same stuff over and over again. And and so Rocky and I talk about the fact that we have this little guy that lives in our head, right? He's He represents the typical VB developer for us because we've worked with him. He's an amalgamation of all those guys we've worked with. And in most of what we're doing, we're trying to think, what's best for that guy? What's mm-hmm. what's What makes his life easier? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, I think, is something that it's very, very hard for the Microsoft people to do because that guy doesn't live in their heads. They don't have that amalgamation. They mm. haven't worked with those guys. Yeah, it's an interesting truth that these folks that build these tools in Microsoft don't build the software with them. So they just don't see the problem the same way we deal with it. That's right. I mean, I, I, I give them a lot of respect. They're smart people and they work hard. I mean, I, I could never work for Microsoft. I'm too bloody lazy hmm. to work for Microsoft. But they, the perspective on the problem is very often missing, and they want to get it from us, and we do our best, but that that's not the same as actually living it. Yeah, it seemed to me that they would have hired people to actually not just test, but go beyond to take the tools, you know, once they're done in that in that beta stage, and take them and do things with them that are inside the company, as well as you know the beta testers that are outside the company. I would certainly like to see, particularly Visual Basic, used for a lot of things inside Microsoft. Yeah, I think it could have the possibility of changing what is, in my mind, um, an inappropriate attitude on the part of many people who come from a systems level background. Yep, and they, you know, they come out of that C plus plus world, and the idea of using Visual Basic to them is somehow distasteful. And, and and that you know, taste I think, yeah. just communicates itself across the community. And they don't mean to. No, they don't mean to be slamming DB, but that distaste just comes across. Well, well doesn't it make sense that, that the developers inside of Microsoft are largely C++ people? Yeah. Because they build operating systems and tools. Right. And that's the thing. We've said this before on the show many times. Um, you know, you're right. It, they don't mean to do it, of course. I think it's just because they don't understand it. They don't know VB. They've never, you know, used it. And it's kind of funny, though, how people are quick to jump on Ruby because it's new. And I look at Ruby and I'm like, man, this is VB++. Yeah. You know, this is all the stuff that we always liked about VB. And uh, and yet, you know, so there's my two cents. And and there there are other factors that come into that um there are it now oh, what's what's the best way to put this when if you're as smart as the people at microsoft and you're as talented and you worked hard to get to the position that you're in what you want to be doing is creating brand new stuff yeah 
right? You want to be doing something that the world has never seen before. Right. And I understand that motivation. But what that means is to that to, to folks with that psychology, there's no glory in making stuff easier to use. Right. And so that, you know, they really, yep. they, they understand the need. They, they they really do, but it's not, it's not a passion for them. You nailed it. Yeah. Nobody's going to get a, a job bonus because, you know, they made, made the language easier. They made something else about it yeah. easier. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else have I been doing that's, that would be interesting to folks. Oh, I, there was one, um, <laughs> I thought this was kind of funny because, you know, Rocky Lock is a great friend of mine. We've written books together and we we talk together at, at conferences and we've been doing this kind of shtick for years and discussing business objects versus data sets. Yeah. And we and we kind of play <laughs> up both sides of it, right? I'm the practical data set, you know, hick doing things. It's awful and, hard to hate data sets these days, let me just tell that, you. That's right. That's that was where I was getting to my point. When you're talking about WCF it it looks like I'm going to get a little bit of the last laugh here, <laughs> <laughs> because WC because data sets are well known types on yeah. both sides. Yeah. Now they become a very very useful container, whereas your business objects now don't really don't really cross the service boundary particularly well. Yeah. And so I thought I thought that was kind of a an interesting way things have turned out. Of, of course, neither of us have been as doctrinaire as we kind of pretend to be in some of the, the, the debates that are entertainment for the crowd. Because <laughs> I use business objects when behavior is important, in particular in workflow apps. Yeah, but, but that uh, when you agree, that doesn't sell books, right? No, it doesn't. So. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and, gotta, and Rocky will disagree. tell you, you know, over the years that he's kind of looked at data sets and gone, well, you know, business objects are more for about behavior. And if it's just data, then fine, data sets. Yeah. So, so we're actually both a lot closer than I think people realize on it. But, you know, in, in the... In the in, in the interest of entertaining the crowds, then I've got the gotcha on WCF. Well, you know. So, last idea here today. Um, I every once in a while you hear the old saw that Microsoft is really, really now really blurring the lines, quote unquote, really now this time between you know the web and Windows programming and the web and Windows in general. Really, that we mean it this time. <laughs> really blurring the lines, quote unquote, and. Uh, uh, you know, the thought occurred to me, well, do I want those lines blurred? I think you do. As I a developer? I, I, as a developer, I think that there is there's a fair amount of utility for that. Um, I mean, I understand writing code once and having it work in both places, but there's just different things about these two things, the, you know, Windows and web applications. Well, maybe a better way of looking at it is that it used to be that we looked at it as just pure browser based or we did something windows formish at the other end of this of the of the yeah. spectrum but now we have a lot of intermediate points in the spectrum sure. wpf has the capacity to scale from one end of that spectrum to the other really sure. and that gives us a lot of choices for where we pick for any individual need that we have you sort of always had this kind of thing in a little in a little a little in bit. A little, I mean, yeah. you've had you've had the browser control that you could use on a Windows form and you've had ActiveX controls and web controls that you could use in uh in, in a you know by web controls I mean uh Windows forms controls in a ASP.NET application. You've always been able to mix elements of one with another. It's just that, you know, the slick factor is being kicked up a notch. For on both sides, and uh, and the ease of use, but 
you know, I still every once in a while I'll still get an IM from somebody or an email from somebody who says, "I know Carl, it's an old argument, but which should we do? A web form, you know, application or a Windows Forms application?" And even when the answer to, "Well, you know, what are you trying to do?" is all client-side stuff, they're still not able to convince their bosses that they need to do a click once app. Well, I see that a lot too. And Actually, the tack that I tend to take on that, and this, all, all of the main systems that I've written over the last five years satisfy this model, is that it's a multi-tiered application in .NET. We have server-based stuff. We have data tier stuff. And then we have various ways that we'll get to the UI. So that big thing that I did for business process engineering and workflow features Windows Forms for people who are doing intense data entry and for pharmacists who need complex information to decide whether or not to approve this this prescription. But it uses ASP.NET for the stuff that's exposed to the ultimate users so they can order refills and check status and things like that out on the web. Yes. And it is it, it is exposed to mobile devices so that they can go back to the shelves and scan a tag. Yeah. And, and this and, has been my answer, too. We'll do both. Integrate yes. them all. Right. And, to give you a metric that kind of helps, we did the smart client Windows Form stuff first, as you might expect, and then we did the ASP.NET part with a substantial subset of that functionality for people outside. Yep. That increased the budget by 8%. Not bad. Eight. Not bad at all. That's a small number. That is a small number. Especially and if you write your, you know, your, your middle layer such that it's accessible on both, pl- on both sides. That's right. Yeah. And that's not the only case where we've had to do this and seen similar results. It, the delta to support multiple UI is not that big Yeah. And from, from a pure cost standpoint. So these are, from my perspective, pretty fruitless arguments to, to have. It should be a case of what does this class of user really need? Yeah. Do that for them, and then don't say that you have to do the same thing for everybody. Sure. That's that's silly. Sure. So, Billy, yeah. what's up with these history web pages? The history <laughs> of the microprocessor, the history of the C family of languages, the history of basic <laughs> family of languages. Yeah. And what's I up with the that? primary point of the history of basic family languages is the improvement in the ability to build Star Trek applications. Okay, yes. <laughs> well, you know, I... I can't call myself a humorist, and I have an enormous amount of respect for authors like, say, Dave Barry, who can just sit down and write something funny. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just in awe. But occasionally something does hit me that I realize will resonate in a humorous way. And that keynote I did in Dallas was was very humorously oriented. So those pieces – actually evolved from some stuff I started back in the mid-90s, just as a casual conversation at a client that I was at then, uh, as Java was coming up. So I wrote those history pieces, and just they sat around on my hard disk for years. <laughs> and then, oh, of course, the focus of the C language discussion is all the drugs that people took to convince that themselves people, yeah. that C, C++, and Java were good ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's right, because in order to believe some of the stuff that people believed about Java in 1997, you had to be hallucinating. <laughs> my, my favorite line, actually, from, from, the one on, from the history on the whole C family, and this is from a real historical incident, is that I think it was 1997, Corel decides to rewrite all of their applications, including WordPerfect, in Java. The result is the first known word processor that is slower to use than a typewriter. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's, that's, see, that kind of snarky thing, there are people out there that really like that. So I, I, I was doing some blogging and realized, you know, this would be funny. I think people would like it. I dressed it, brought them up to date, and then kind of put them out staggered. I still have one to go. The history of the Internet is still sitting on my disk, ready to be updated. And put <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned Dave Barry. You know, uh, you know, he's got a band of authors, including Stephen King, that – plays, you know, Louie Louie for hours on end, and that's about it. Because that's the song they've got. The Rock Bottom Remainders. The Rock Bottom Remainders. Yeah, Roy Blount Jr. is known to have been in it. And who else is I can't remember, but uh, I know Stephen King's in it. Anyway, I emailed Dave Barry, and I I told him, hey, why don't you come over to New London? I'll record your band, and, uh, you know, free of charge. And his response was, no, I'm sorry, but one of the promises that we made as the Rock Bottom Remainders is that we would never, ever be recorded. (laughs) (laughs) He says, if you ever heard us, you'd understand. (laughs) Well, he may not be much of a musician, but he's funny. And you know those pages, uh, they they apparently were pretty funny. They they have now gotten about 40,000 page views apiece. Nice. And so so that's that's by far I think that's it's ironic to think that probably more people have read that those things than anything else I've ever written. Wow. <laughs> that is that is something about that. I don't know yeah. what to say. Uh here's one more trivia fact before we leave uh about me and Nashville. Did you know that uh I was on, on the Nashville network? No, I did not know that. Yeah, I was on You Can Be a Star. Do you know that show? I've heard of that show, yes. Yep. And uh, I went down there with two other guys. We were on this talent show. Uh, our judges were the Whites. You know who the Whites are? No, sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. They were a gospel group that was very popular in the 50s and 60s. And a uh, so, uh, father and two daughters. Anyway, they were our judges. One of the daughters is Ricky Skaggs' wife. Okay. Sharon White, I think. So... um we were we went on the show and we did Seven Bridges Road a cappella with a guitar and we won and then we went to the finals and we lost to a uh, a Broadway show tune singer but it's probably out there on YouTube or something else I think it was like eighty eight eighty nine I'm not sure when exactly I can't remember it's been a while I bet that was fun it was fun. But, but, I prof- but I profess ignorance about the, the local music scene to a great extent. And here's a great story about Buck White, and if anybody knows who he is. Uh, you know, this guy who was on before us called himself a singing waiter, and yeah. he sang Unchained Melody in about 90 keys all at once. Ouch. Uh, he had this falsetto that was just bold. You know what I mean? He was just... <laughs> He did this falsetto thing. He went off at the end, and uh, and and Buck White says, "Well, you got a good range <laughs> and a lots of nerve." <laughs> he gave him a five, five out of ten. That was the funniest thing I ever. Saw. All right, well, that's the show, Billy. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I enjoyed it as always. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. And Richard, we will see you again next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. 
All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Time for life is hard. Pay my taxes.